0: We head deep beneath the Black Hills to find answers to the mysteries of the universe. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Tuesday, May 16th, and this is In The Moment. We continue our week of science coverage by revisiting a few of our favorite conversations with South Dakota scientists. Today, we're exploring how an underground facility is exploring fundamental questions about the universe. First, we'll hear about how engineers excavated giant caverns in the Black Hills and why. Hint, it's for science. Then we'll hear from two South Dakota mine students about their small part on a big project and we'll just be getting started. We're broadcasting today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. We're devoting this week to science exploration on In The Moment, so let's head underground into some very, very big caverns. There's a lot of digging and excavating being done in the Black Hills. Why? Well, for science. The Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment, or DUNE, involves building colossal caverns beneath the Sanford Underground Research Facility. Joshua Wilhite is one of the lead engineers on Dune. He joined us in January to help listeners wrap their minds around who's digging these caverns, what role they'll play in scientific advancements, and just how mind-bogglingly big they are. Here's this conversation with Lori. Take a listen. Tell us a little bit about how big is big when we're
1: talking about cavern excavation. (laughs) Help us understand the scale of what's
2: underway. Yeah, so these are some of the largest excavations ever to be done, uh, especially at this depth anywhere in the world. It's pretty hard to wrap your mind around it, and so I've been thinking about the best way to, to give an example that uh, most people can relate to, and I think what I came up with is if, if you're on an interstate highway, the, each of the lanes on the highway is 12 feet wide. Well, we're 64 feet wide, so we're we're more than five lanes wide. We're almost uh, seven semi-trucks long. So a semi-truck is uh, is 70 feet long. We're, we're actually not almost. We're a little bit more than that. We're almost 500 feet long. <laughs> and so if you've got a five-lane interstate highway with seven semi-trucks long, we could stack <laughs> six of those on top of each other. So you could fit 210 standard semi-trucks inside of each of our caverns and we've got two of those caverns that size. And we've got even a, another cavern that's not quite as tall. It's only about two semi-trucks tall, but it's a bit longer, so you could fit nine semi-trucks long within that cavern at the same width. So we could uh, we could fit a lot of trucks underground if we could get there. V- very large caverns. Wow.
1: Um, obviously, the experiment itself is so fascinating and uh, groundbreaking for science, but the engineering of how to even create this Is equally fascinating. Um, What kind of operation are you running when it comes to staffing power, safety, just figuring out how all of this
2: works? Sure, so as you can imagine working uh, in in this kind of environment there's a lot of people that need to be involved. Uh, A lot of engineering to get us to the point where we could do the excavation. Right now I work for the Fermi Research Alliance and we've got uh, 13 people that are on staff. And we've got a construction manager that we work with, Keywood alberici Joint Venture. They've got about 30 people. And all of those people help us to manage the actual performing contractor, which is Tyson Mining. And Tyson Mining has uh, a staff of around 130 people that uh, they, they're working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So obviously that 130 is spread over the week. They're not all underground at once. But uh, pretty large endeavor.
1: Tell me who's doing the work, engineers, laborers, uh, like what is the variety of people who are actually showing up with their lunch boxes every day?
2: Right. So Tyson Mining is the performing contractor, and, and those are the guys that are really doing the work. And most of them like to be called miners. They're, they're really doing excavation in, in our case. Uh, because we're not mining anything, right? We're not we're not extracting that rock to get anything out of it. We're just creating the space. Uh so that's the majority of them, but you need mechanics to maintain the the huge equipment that's being used to do this. You need laborers to keep the area clean and deliver things. You need engineers to help plan. You need safety people to make sure that the work is being done Uh, safely and kind of keep their eyes on that. Uh, Quality people to verify the quality. Um, You know, it's it's a wide variety of staff that's required.
1: Where does the rock go? How do you transport it out? What do you do with it?
2: Yeah, so we're housed within the Sanford Underground Research Facility, which is in the former home state gold mine. And so anybody familiar with Leeds, South Dakota, where we're located, is familiar with the large open cut that was developed for Homestake to extract gold historically. Now the gold mine shut down in early 2000s and it was resurrected as this underground research facility. Um, But by having that gold mine, we were able to restore the types of systems that existed. Uh, Since we're not extracting gold, we don't need any mills or anything of that nature. And so we installed a conveyor system that transports that rock out and actually deposits it within that open cut. It's a really small proportion. You know, it's we're gonna move about eight hundred thousand tons of rock, which sounds like a lot, but in the size of that open cut it's just kind of a, a drop in the bucket of that large open cut.
1: For people who are working that tradition of mining and are thinking about safety and then the work that you're doing now and you're thinking about stability and making sure this all comes off without injury, uh, without the old-fashioned collapse, what's changed? What are the tools that you have um, at your disposal now where you can say, this is not your great-great-grandfather's mining operation?
2: Sure. So, I would say that Homestake, even in the early 2000s, before the facility stopped mining, uh, had already made a lot of the changes that we still use. So, you know, your great-great-grandfather didn't have nearly the, the safety equipment that we had, didn't didn't have the tools that we have. Uh, some of the more sp- significant things that, that we're using that even Homestake didn't have quite as sophisticated of tools is... Uh, We use what's called computerized drill jumbos. So these are drills that the operator is actually sitting in a a cab, and the drill is out in front of them. They're not working near the face where it's being drilled. Mm -hmm. And a computer is actually controlling where that drill moves from hole to hole, and it really allows us to create a very precise drill pattern for the explosions that we use to, to remove the rock. So it's drill and blast excavation. Homestake had similar tools, but not to the level of the computerization. And, uh, you know, our equipment is, is certainly uh, top of the line.
1: Are you doing science at the same time? Are there researchers trying to figure out what can we learn from this massive excavation?
2: So certainly our designer is, uh, is taking a lot of data on... Uh, how the rock mass around the excavation is reacting to these large openings. Now, this span of of opening is not an unprecedented. It's it's near the top end of of the precedent that's been set. Um, and so we know that we know it's safe. We know that the design is is going to hold. And we've got models that predict how much movement you'll see because you will see some minor movements initially as it's excavated. And so there will be many white papers that are written about how that rock actually reacted as compared to the model. So far everything has has aligned very closely with the model. We've been very pleased with the uh with the design and how it's it's shown itself. Um so there's that that type of science going on. Um the scientists themselves that will work on the dune experiment once it's installed many years from now. They're really interested in things like the concrete and shotcrete that we're using. So shotcrete is just concrete that's applied by spraying it. You see it in the swimming pools
1: okay.
2: uh, is an example. And they're interested in that because there's a very, very little bit of radioactivity that comes along with that. Nothing that anybody would ever be concerned about from a health perspective. Yeah. But when you're looking at science like we're looking at, it's really important. So they're studying things like that.
1: That's fascinating. What kind of community support and community conversations are happening during this time? It must be an exciting time to live in Leeds, but there, I'm guessing, are challenges to it as well.
2: Yeah, certainly. I think uh, we have a very good relationship with the city of Leed. Uh, we meet with, I personally meet with the mayor uh, every few weeks, make sure that he's aware of, of what's going on. Uh, we work with the city administrator and uh, the commission as needed and so we we do definitely have a good um good communication path between us and in general it's been very supportive uh i can't can't complain at all about the support we've gotten from the community and
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know certainly the community has seen some benefits of of us bringing this work to to the area uh it's not without challenges we we <clears throat> As I mentioned, we're depositing this rock in, in a very visible area of the of the town, and so we've had to work through some challenges with that. We've got a lot of traffic, and if you've been to Lead, parking mm-hmm. is can can be a challenge, and and we've worked through those types of issues. But it's always been a very productive. Let's work together, solve these issues, and and make sure that the project can can keep moving.
1: Joshua Wilhite is one of the lead engineers on DUNE, and uh, we appreciate your time. We hope to talk to you again.
2: All right. Thank you, Lori.
0: That was Lori Walsh's conversation with one of DUNE's lead engineers, Joshua Wilhite, joined in the moment last January. Next, we'll revisit a conversation that SDPB's Kara Hetland had with two South Dakota Mines students. They worked on a small part of the deep underground neutrino experiment for a few years— And now that they're graduating and moving on to other things, they reminisce on the work they did and how they're handing it off to the next generation of budding scientists. Because that's the beauty of science. It's a group effort. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. Before the break, we headed into the deep, dark caverns beneath the Black Hills, Well, kick up your feet, because we're staying there for a while. You heard from an engineer working on digging out those caverns. Now, let's talk about the experiment happening underground. The Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment is an ongoing project that seeks to unveil some of the secrets of the universe. In March, SDPB's Kara Hetland checked in with two students who worked on a small part of the giant long-term experiment for a short, multi-year window. Ian Helgeson is a senior at South Dakota Mines. He graduates this month. And Cole Pickner worked at Dune as a graduate student at South Dakota Mines and graduated in December. Here's Kara's conversation with the two, starting with Ian.
4: Specifically, I've been working on the light calibration system in Dune. So that's basically a system um, that will be used to make sure the detector is working how we want it to before we actually start i um, looking at detecting neutrinos, which is eventually the goal. So I've been working on, like I said, the light calibration system, which you can think of as just little beams of light um, going through a giant box. You can see just like a giant cardboard box, and we're shining a flashlight through one side. And we want to basically see what happens. So we're detecting this light, and we know what this light is. The scientists know exactly you know, what color it is, what strength it is, It's going through the detector and we're able to detect that light. And since we know what it's supposed to be, we can see what it is and kind of adjust and calibrate the detector. So as a mechanical engineer, or at least getting close to that as a student here, we design the actual housings that take fiber optic light. We're sending light into this sealed box via optical fiber, just a little like a glass string, you can think of that. And we build these little housings that have a little mirror And a diffuser so that light comes in these little plastic housings um they're probably the size of uh, like a little cardboard box maybe two inches by two inches the light comes into the top and it comes out at a 90 degree angle and kind of spreads out so we're taking the tiny little um, spot of light from the optical fiber and spreading it out sending it across the detector and then the um, other part of light calibration system that we're not really working on they uh detects that, and then, again, since we know what it's supposed to be, um, we can see and calibrate for the actual detector.
5: Okay. So this is really, um, you know what it's supposed to be, and you have to make sure that that the sensors are really capturing what it's supposed to be.
4: Yep. So, so again, if we know let's what it is. Let's simplify it, The right? sensors, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the sensors, so, again, say we have, let's just use the analogy of a cardboard box. Right, so we have a, let's say a laser pointer, and we, have, we know it's a green laser pointer, mm-hmm. and we know how bright the laser pointer is. Mm-hmm. The light calibration system is sending the light through these diffusers, and then we know on the other side, okay, we're supposed to get green, medium strength light. And if it's anything different, if it shifts, you know, so they're a little bit more blue, then we can calibrate the system to kind of uh, filter some of that out, because we want it to be detecting exactly what it should be. And the you know, the detectors and the sensors are not perfect but again if we set something that we know then we can compare to what we're actually seeing.
5: And this is because this brings in the physics side of things is as, as that as these neutrinos are passing from underground from Fermi in Chicago uh, to the Sanford Underground Research Facility into this tank of argon liquid that's going to be that that flash of light um, and that's what you're building, calibrating, right, to capture that light because you know what it's going to look like.
4: Yep, and, and those little flashes of light are so incredibly small and, and, and so you have to be so sensitive to see it. So any difference in the detectors or any inaccuracies with the actual sensors um, could, you know, could be the, the temperature of the argon is, is specific. There can be little, you know, if there's any impurities, you think if there's any dust in there. No, there shouldn't be, but we're not for sure, and we want to calibrate so we can basically get rid of all that extra noise that could be in there that we don't know. Because once we seal up the detector and we fill it with this really, really, really cold liquid, um, it's pretty much impossible to open it and go see. So that's what the calibration system is giving us, a little bit of adjustment so we can see only the little neutrino flashes of light that we actually want to see.
5: Right, and I mean, there's no opening up the door and fixing, uh, fixing this. Um, so how nope. are you? How are you sure it's going to work?
4: Well, uh, we're not sure yet. Um, you know, this is what I, I guess more specifically what I've been working on is Proto Dune Two. So this is the second prototype run. So they had a Proto Dune One. So that was the original prototype, which is just a smaller version of the full dune. And the full dune right now is getting worked on up at uh, the Sanford lab underground. So Proto Dune two is hopefully the last prototype and is planned to be the last prototype before we go to the full dune. So we're basically practicing our techniques, um, practicing, you know, if these housings are going to work in sitting in, again, liquid argon, super, super cold liquid mm-hmm. um, for many years and testing that in the smaller protodune prototype before we put, you know, hundreds of them in the full dune because the scale is, is pretty different there. Um, so that's why we're doing right now and using and basically figuring out how we're going to make these for the larger scale project in the future.
5: And so you're a senior, about ready to finish up uh, and graduate in May. What comes next for you? Uh,
4: I will be working with an uh, uh, electronics manufacturing company uh, in Rapid City. So I'll be staying around, sticking around South Dakota and uh, working for them right after graduation.
5: So you have to give up this project. What is that? How, how does that feel?
4: Um, it definitely, I'm definitely going to miss it. Um, it's been a really, really good experience, especially working with our international partners um, and learning about all these different labs and all these different physics. And granted, I am not an expert in a theoretical physics now, um, but it's really interesting to have to connect these, these really complicated physics concepts and actually figure out how we're going to do it um, as a mechanical engineer. And that's one of the reasons that I went into this field uh, because I want to take some of these really interesting concepts that these um, physicists come up with and and these really complicated things and and make something that we can actually practically see. Um, So it's definitely going to be uh, missing this project. Uh, And again, like all the people, um, with my colleagues here at School of Mines and, and internationally. Um, it's just been a really, really great experience, and I hope to stay definitely in the loop and stay in communication um, and give some of that feedback if I've never ever asked that.
5: So you'll keep an eye on the experiment and how it's going?
4: Absolutely, yes.
5: Yeah, but it it must be tough to walk away from too.
4: It definitely is, but I also, you know, when I started as a sophomore, it was such a great project for me to grow as a student and an engineer. It really helped me develop my communication skills and develop all those more technical skills. So I think it's an awesome opportunity, even though I have to step away, for somebody else to step up um, and kind of keep the, the cycle through the team of mechanical engineering students and physics students. And that's that's kind of the beauty of university. You know, it's sad that you have to leave some of these projects, but the next generation is always coming up and always growing. And it's really um, makes me happy to be able to give the opportunity to somebody else here.
5: And bringing a new perspective.
4: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, everybody has different ideas and um, you know, that's just, just being able to discuss that and come up with the best way to go forward is um, really, really great. it's a great experience for anybody. And, you know, every person that's come in has said something like I haven't thought about um, or, you know, Cole might, Have thought of something I didn't think about. You always kind of varying experience levels really help to bring each other forward. And that's been really, really awesome.
5: All right. Ian, I want to thank you very much for taking time and talking with us today. I appreciate it.
4: Awesome. Well, thank you so much.
0: And here's the rest of Kara's conversation with another student who worked on the same project as Ian. Kara spoke with Cole Pickner by phone. He was a graduate student at South Dakota Mines and graduated in December.
5: So let's talk a little bit about uh, the mechanical engineering side uh, of the Dune experiment and and your role
6: in it. Sure. Okay. Um, So I guess... From a kind of high-level perspective, uh, our team was responsible for the design and implementation of um, the calibration system of the detector, um, which basically means that we were building the equipment uh, that would be installed in the system um, to kind of teach it how to Uh, look for neutrino uh, interactions in the detector. So a lot of what I did uh, as far as the mechanical design side is um, create kind of um, new ways of uh, testing different things like um, fiber optic cables and uh, different parts and components and stuff like that. Um, These all had to be in a cryogenic environment, meaning really, really cold, which uh, having something operate that way for, uh, you know, the intended life cycle of 20 years um, is definitely an engineering challenge. Um, I guess we also required like a lot of kind of novel, unique parts. So we were able to really put our thinking caps on and develop some creative solutions uh, that could be just easily 3D printed and stuff. Um, so, really we didn't have a whole lot of limitation of what we were able to design and build.
5: How long did you work on this project?
6: Uh, about two and a half years.
5: Okay, and how much creativity and freedom did you really have?
6: Um, it kind of would depend on, on the task, I guess. Um, a lot of it was Pretty collaborative with some, uh, you know, more high up figures like in the Department of Energy and over in Europe and CERN and stuff. We kind of have direction on uh, what they might want. Uh, some of the stuff, though, um, was really here's some goal that we need to accomplish and uh, try to come up with some <laughs> solution for it out of the box. So, in those instances, that was very Uh, very much a a free assignment. If you can come up with a solution, let's see it, type of deal. Did you? That was really fun. Uh, I'd like to think so.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel you had a direct impact on this part of the project?
6: Um, uh, Me personally or or the group?
5: Yeah, you personally.
6: Yeah, I I, I think so. Um, I think a lot of... uh, you know, the designs that um, I worked on over the years um, are going to hopefully uh, be implemented in some way. Um, I mean, they definitely were in, uh, like, the prototype run um, that was completed last year uh, over at CERN in Switzerland and stuff. Um, and so hopefully they'll, they'll roll some of that into the actual Final detector uh, version in South Dakota when that gets built. I hope so.
5: (laughs) And so you graduated and you moved on and you're working for NASA. Is that correct?
6: Um, Not entirely. Uh, Oh, you're working on Martin. Got it. Which is we're a major NASA contractor. Got it. Sorry, officially uh, employed by NASA. No.
5: But you're going from you know a mile underground to what Mars. Uh, that's in right. in projects basically that's kind of was was my point where I was going with it but so how how do you think yeah, okay take your experience working under or working on this project uh to to what you're bringing with you to your new job
6: um I think um a lot of just kind of the experience of collaborating on, Uh, very large-scale, very requirement-sensitive projects is really invaluable. Um, Just kind of the idea of working with a large team to plan out this mission that's, uh, you know, going to be a really long-term goal. Um, You know, Dune is they're not done excavating yet. It's not even going to get started completing uh, or started uh, construction for a while until the excavations are complete. And then after that, you know, the experiment has to run for decades. Um, And here, uh, you know, a lot of our uh, programs here, the larger ones that I'm on aren't going to launch for five or six years. So we have to plan out that far ahead. And then their mission cycles will also be another you know, several years long. Um, so I think that would maybe be a uh, major kind of crossover there.
5: Yeah. You have to be a patient person, don't you?
6: <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely.
5: <laughs> All right, Cole Pigner, I want to thank you for taking time out of your
0: schedule to talk with us today. appreciate it.
6: Yeah, thank you very much. It's my pleasure.
0: That was Kara Hetland's March conversation with two South Dakota mine students about their work on the deep underground neutrino experiment. She spoke first with Ian Helgeson, who is graduating this month, and then with Cole Pickner, a graduate student who graduated in December. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. When SDPB's Lee Strubinger toured the Sanford Underground Research Facility in 2018, he checked in on an experiment exploring the beginnings of the universe. That's right, the beginnings of everything. The Majorana demonstrator's experiment is over now. You'll hear more about its results later in the hour. But when Lee visited in 2018, the experiment was still chugging along. Lee spoke with researchers back when they proved they can create an environment that lets them see what's called neutrinoless double beta decay. In layman's terms, it's a reaction that researchers said may help explain why matter exists in the universe. We are made of matter, so the experiment tried to explain why we exist, and why everything in our universe exists. Here's Lee's reporting from inside the Sanford Underground Research Facility about how the Majorana demonstrator did its thing. Take a listen.
3: The Yates is one of two shafts from the Homestake mine that takes researchers down 4,850 feet. The shaft is built from timber beams that roll on the way down. Water drips down the shaft to keep the wood from drying out. No matter how bright and sunny it is outside, the dark and damp ride underground is gloomy at best, like standing in the rain. At the bottom of this 10-minute ride, some of the world's top scientists are chasing for the origins of the universe. To reach that understanding, scientists need to design, grow, and build a piece of equipment called the Majorana Demonstrator to create a low-energy environment. The demonstrator is a six-layer shield of everything from polyethylene plastic to the world's purest copper. Inside are cryostats full of an element called germanium. All of this is needed to observe a very sensitive process called neutrinoless double beta decay. Observing that process would tell scientists only one thing.
7: To explain why we're here, why is there matter in the universe?
3: That's Kabat-Anne Christopherson a spokesperson with the project. Earlier this year, researchers created an environment free from background interference to potentially observe the decay process in the element germanium. Christofferson says observing this process in a normal environment is like trying to hear one voice in a crowded room.
7: Eliminate all the other things that are making noise, then you can hone in on the one thing that you're trying to listen to, or in this case, observe. And so eliminating background from the material that is surrounding the germanium is the key so that we can focus in on the actual noise that the germanium would make, or the signal that the germanium is making.
3: Just to reach this point took eight years and required what's called a Class 100 clean room, an immaculate, filtered environment. Researchers must wear Tyvek suits to protect the experiment from any oils and particles on the human skin. Any cell phones and glasses must be wiped clean with alcohol towelettes. It's a lot of effort, but what these researchers are hoping to observe is very, very rare. Neutrinos are everywhere. Trillions pass through us at any given second. They're subatomic particles produced by fusion reactions inside stars. However, here... Researchers are on the hunt for a reaction that does not produce a neutrino. Vincent Giuseppe is also a spokesperson with the project. He says observing a reaction without a neutrino tells them something special about the properties of the neutrino.
8: It means it's acting in a way that doesn't make sense given our standard way we look at physics and particle physics. And if that were to be true, it tells us the neutrino is acting in a new way. We believe could happen, but we haven't observed it. And it's telling us something about some balances in nature that don't add up the way we thought. We thought every time you have one type of particle, you have another particle to balance it. In this case, the electron is balanced by a neutrino.
3: Giuseppe says if a neutrino is not there following a reaction, that tells researchers something they didn't know about the universe, that there can be an imbalance of particles.
8: In the beginning of the universe, there should have been equal parts matter and antimatter. We look around. I see you, I see the building, I see the stars, I see the sun, that's all matter. Yet all the matter and antimatter should have annihilated or basically canceled each other out. But after all that cancelization happened in the early universe, a tiny speck of matter was left over and that tiny speck is everything we see.
3: Observing a reaction without a neutrino is a lot like winning the lottery. Phase two of this project will quadruple in size and take place in an underground lab in Italy. Currently, the demonstrator uses 44 kilograms of pure germanium to detect any of this special decay. Phase two will require 200 kilograms of germanium and start in several years. Phase three will be even larger. Giuseppe says the larger the project, the more chances they'll observe the phenomenon.
8: If it's behaving in all the ways it's been behaving, this would be a really exciting thing to see. It'd be an exciting process, decay to see, because it would show us it, it, it would almost be, maybe not the final act, but you could almost imagine it being the final act of the neutrino. This is the, 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 the climax of its story. Uh, we've, we've explained a lot of how it acts, and now we find out it, it's indistinguishable from its anti-partner. It, it can allow this sort of decay that we're looking for to happen. You know, this is the thing that would you could imagine being the, the final act of its play, and it's going to get the most applause.
3: A five-minute underground trolley ride away at the bottom of another mine shaft, a team of researchers will work on what's called the Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment, or DUNE. Scientists will shoot a beam of neutrinos from Fermi Lab in Batavia, Illinois, 800 miles through the Earth to detectors in the Sanford lab. The goal is to understand how neutrinos behave over time. That's tricky when your subject matter travels at the speed of light. Deborah Harris is a senior scientist with Fermi Lab. And the problem is that if something is going very close to the speed of light, or at basically at the speed of light, if you want to wait a certain amount of time, that means you have to go a very long distance. So the only way to have two um, detectors that are both on the Earth is to make a beam of neutrinos and shoot them through the Earth, and then they'll come out back out through the surface of the Earth, you know, some very long distance away. As neutrinos pass through the universe, they oscillate in patterns. Harris, along with other scientists, want to measure the moment a neutrino changes its oscillation or flavor. Harris says that's a key measurement. We have this new theory that, oh, neutrinos have mass, and there's some equations that govern their behavior that would tell you, oh, they should change energy. They should change flavors um, as a function of energy in a very specific way. Harris says their work is unique because it's measuring that change. But before any of these measurements can take place, they must build an underground lab. They'll move 800,000 tons of rock to make room for three caverns deep underground. Two of those three will contain huge cryostats full of liquid argon. In total, those cryostats will measure the equivalent of 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools. The remaining cavern will hold the equipment necessary to support the work. Chris Mosse is the deputy director for construction.
4: Because of the nature of the work and, and some of the engineering challenges, you know, building these, these um, large cryostats that I described to you underground is, is a little bit like a ship-in-the-bottle
3: type of challenge. Mosse says he expects the project to be completed in eight years. Until then, they'll focus on building a facility that lets them unlock the mysteries of the neutrino. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lee Stroopinger, and lead.
0: just heard SDPB's Lee Strubinger explain how the Majorana demonstrator works and why it was doing that work. The experiment wrapped up this spring. So what did it find? Well, first of all, the experiment successfully brought us one step closer to understanding an important imbalance in the universe. That imbalance offers answers to why planets exist, why humans exist, why your coffee mug exists. You get it. Cabot Ann Christofferson is a chemist and researcher at South Dakota Mines. As you heard in Lee's story, she's worked on the demonstrator since the beginning. She joined us in March with an update on the Majorana demonstrator. Let's go back to maybe
1: 2010 or so, and you're I, sort of I know.
7: <laughs> standing I, in this space. Did you ever is, think,
1: tell us about that, yeah.
7: Well, it, it's fantastic that, that we've had such good coverage over, you know, the past almost yeah. 13 years of this experiment that's been going on. And, you know, the, the point of being here is is that last week we had a, a very big um, publicity uh, that was really to show the broad physics program that the Myrana demonstrator completed at SURF, uh, our final results. The paper was just released, and the new directions that we're able to do with this science that it's is at SURF. And, and I just want to take a moment to, uh, you know, to thank our host lab, uh, mm-hmm. Sanford Underground Research Facility, that you know this experiment was conducted in. Uh, We were funded from the UNIS Department of Energy, the Office of Science, uh, National Science Foundation, of Coast Orkridge National Lab, Los Alamos National Lab. And, and so it takes a lot of people, a lot of resources, to get to where we are today. So I'm very happy to be here.
1: So this is a global co- competition in ways, too. And, and so the administration has to be on point. The funding has to be solid. The science has to be sound. What does the success of this exhibit and the potential scalability of it mean to you?
7: Well, uh, what we were able to do is we were able to um, show that we could fine-tune specific parts of this experiment. Um, through its uniqueness, and with that, we combined with a European experiment that had some other capabilities, and going forward, we then scale up to uh, a next uh, larger experiment that has more of a possibility of looking at this rare decay process we were searching for, and then the next phase is an even larger experiment. So, uh, you know, you think that maybe this is, you know, not... You is resources well spent, but if you think about it, this is basic research and as you scale, you discover more, you invent more, and we have a great amount of benefit that we get out of all of these technologies that are developed for these types of experiments, plus training the next generation of scientists. Yeah, let's talk so about a couple of those here. things,
1: and I want to start, before we get to the scientists and the South Dakota students, undergrads, sure. postdocs, everybody. Um, yep. Let's go back to that ultra-pure copper. When you talk about the technology that needs to happen, how important is that process and what you learned about creating that ultra-pure copper going to do in the future in other applications or in this oh, application? Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Say more so about that. So that
7: was one, right, that's one of our, our, our key things that we take forward into the next experiments. But let me just give you a little step. You know, We, d- we use uh, germanium, enriched germanium-76, which has to be ultra-pure. But you can't just take a material and put it in a normal container and see what's going to happen. You know, we we took all of these materials, fabricated in-house or through special controls, and we assembled it underground, so eliminating that possibility of noise or interference from the surface. And then, as you said, you know, this ultra-clean opera was one of the components that eliminated all of this background noise that could create an overshadow of this very, very tiny, minuscule energy uh, point that we are trying to listen for that will help us understand how matter behaves. And so that uh, those clean materials, clean techniques, uh, these inventions of new types of detectors and uh, low-noise electronics uh, that other other avenues will benefit from. That's what was developed for this experiment going forward.
1: Yeah. For listeners who are a little unfamiliar to this, um, catch them up with this imbalance in the universe and what what is the big question that you're sure, trying to get sure. closer what to is, answering? Yeah. Now?
7: The big question is if we think about uh, when the universe was created, matter and antimatter were in equal matters and or in equal amounts. Mm-hmm. So as they come together, they you should just have a. Uh, An annihilation with a release of energy, and that's all that remains. But what we see is that there's matter that remains in the universe, and we don't quite understand where that imbalance comes from. So, you know, understanding how matter is interacting is an answer of why you know the universe is here. Mm -hmm. And so, what we look at is we look at these processes of of the neutrino. Um, that may answer this question about this tiny, minuscule, uh, you know, with very little matter, no charge, uh, that is emitted from uh, reactions. We see neutrinos coming from the sun every day. They're released as hydrogen uh, fuses to form helium. We see it coming off nuclear reactors. There's neutrinos coming out of you because you're radioactive, out of a banana. Uh, These small, tiny particles we have to understand how it is that they may be the key of understanding this creation of matter uh, from from energy. And Mm -hmm. so what we did is we took a unique isotope, or this germanium, and were able to look at these atoms and to see if we can observe this decay process to understand that behavior of the neutrino, if it could be both matter and antimatter, both those things, yet... Show us why there's still matter in the universe. Yeah. So that even that's a lot. <laughs> to, <laughs> it is, and to I, take oh, in. Yep. And Over
1: the years, I think South Dakotans, um, through the science communication that you've done on this show and on other shows, has helped all of us understand this better. But let's go back to those students. Those students mm-hmm. who got to be working with internet, you know, science from all over the world, scientists from all over the world, to be part of this process. How significant has that been for the legacy of this demonstrator?
7: Well, this has been fantastic because you've had this opportunity of, you know, School of Mines and other South Dakota students coming and learning about this. They see, you know, uh, other scientists, whether they're Ph.D., postdocs, or scientists at labs at universities. Uh, You get that exposure of in the lab working on these types of experiments and understanding that big picture, which really is just training them for whatever they do next. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to go, you know, further into this type of work, but any exposure of basic science is going to benefit these students. And I had the pleasure of, you know, this is a physics experiment with many, many physicists being the chemist of still being able to bring in uh, a wide variety of students from the School of Mines, regardless of what their major was. I mean, we've had biology, uh, mechanical engineers, chemical engineers, chemists, physicists, that have come and they get this exposure and they see all how science and engineering interlinks, how you benefit from those collaborations to build an experiment. And I couldn't have done it without them. I mean, so being at the School of Mines, I get a wealth of students that are qualified to come and work underground and learn and then go off and be the next generation of scientists that will do these types of projects in the future.
1: Real quickly, are you working on the next generation of this experiment? Are we going to continue? I, I am awesome. I do. <laughs> I,
7: I ha- yeah. I have a I have a, bitty, a big role, and a great news. Um, you know, SURF has a, a part to play in this too. You know, this experiment happened at SURF, and okay. and we do have a next generation of what is happening down there. We we uh, modified the Myrana Demonstrator into a new decay process. We can talk about in just a second. But um, going forward, uh, we we have this ultra-clean chemistry lab. We grow the electroformed yeah. copper underground. And this is just something that benefits uh, SURF going forward. Even if the next experiment is not there, there's still a part contributing to this experiment with the chemistry of these ultra-pure materials that need to be in the fabrication of these next-generation yeah. experiments.
0: That's our show today. We hope that it served you. We say goodbye to the underground caverns beneath the Black Hills for now, so instead, we head to the surface. We'll have more science coverage tomorrow, this time all about biology and chemistry. We'll meet South Dakota's hoppiest residents with herpetologist Dr. Jake Kirby. He explains how a warming climate helps and hurts your amphibious neighbors. We'll also revisit Lori Walsh's conversation with chemistry and biochemistry expert, Dr. Rachel Willen-Charnley. They dove into how cancer cells trick the immune system and what that means for treatment opportunities and the human lives at stake. We'll also explore the stinky science behind algae blooms and the ongoing evolutionary battle between monarchs and milkweeds. I hope you're as excited as I am. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh.